Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. We've all heard about it these days. Coronavirus. It's out there, and we know that there are some folks worldwide who have been infected. So today we're going to talk a little bit more about this virus in particular, what people may want to know about the symptoms, and how we can all help protect one another from having this become a huge problem in our community, although, granted, we may not be able to stop that from happening. So today I'm joined by the Chief of Infectious Disease at Kaiser Permanente, Dr. Tarquin Collis. Thank you for joining me today. Very welcome. It's good to be here. Everyone is worried. Clearly they are concerned, as we all are, even as providers, coronavirus. What's different about this particular virus than maybe influenza virus? Yes, well... We're still learning a lot about this virus. You know, it is, um, for us, a novel virus um, in the sense that this is really the first major outbreak of this kind of coronavirus that is not native to humans, that has become very transmissible. Um, it's in a group of viruses that we call beta coronaviruses um, or group B coronaviruses, and these are really primarily um, viruses that live in bats. Um, there have been two prior human outbreaks prior to this one of coronaviruses, um, the SARS outbreak in 2003 and the uh, MERS outbreak or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus outbreak in 2012. Those were very different than this one in that they weren't terribly transmissible and that everyone who had them became very ill. This third um, outbreak with the the SARS coronavirus um, that we're dealing with now, um, SARS-CoV-2 as it's called, is a different beast than the prior two, and it's a little different than influenza. Um, As best we can tell, um, it's a virus that also came from bats, but unlike SARS and MERS, um, the vast majority of the people who get it aren't terribly ill, probably some 80%, as best we can gather, of folks don't get terribly sick. Um, There are, however, um, subsets of folks who do get quite ill, and that's something that that, that we did see in both SARS and MERS, is that the elderly in particular, or those with certain underlying conditions, um, diabetes, heart disease um, in particular, seem to be predisposed to having um, a lot of illness with this. One really interesting thing that distinguishes this virus from influenza is that influenza has um, something like a a U-shaped curve, meaning it's very hard um, in the very young and it's very hard in the very old. This virus, it feels like, um, is missing half the U um, in the sense that it's really very um, mild in the young uh, kids. Infants um, seem to do fine with this, by and large. Um, there have been very few severe illnesses in the young. It's really only in age-dependent fashion that we see a lot of severe disease in those, um, especially those greater than 80. So when we think about the numbers of people, you know, there have been, and at the time we play this, you know, the numbers change all the time. So there will probably be more than this. There's already over 100,000, about 120,000 people worldwide who have had the exposure When we know that people have gotten ill from this and they start tracing where they got exposed, what are the likely exposures? Are we, I know that we're hearing about folks who might travel to locations where there's been somebody who has had it. If someone gets this and they have a mild episode, would they even know they have it? Yes. Um, So what we're, what we're gathering, and again, um, it's really hard in the middle of an outbreak 
to sort out um, the spectrum of disease that's present in an illness. A lot of times it's not until after outbreaks have passed and you can do serologies, blood testing of broad spectrum of the population to figure out who actually had it that might not have even known about it. Um, a lot of times that, that information comes out near the end of, of, of an outbreak. But what we are seeing, um, certainly out of China, um, which was obviously the epicenter of this and where therefore we have the best data from, is that there is a subset of people, although it's it's a pretty modest number, who are asymptomatic among adults. In children, it's not that uncommon to be close to asymptomatic uh, with this infection. And again, for some 80% of the population, and especially those who are in good health and, and young, this is a febrile illness with, with a cough and not, not very distinguishable from lots of other colds and, and flus that, that we would see during this time of year. So if somebody develops a fever and a cough, at what point would they need to consider, hey, should I tell my doctor, do I need to get more medical attention for this? Yes. Well, I think um, a lot depends on your age and the severity of, of your symptoms. Um, we're at a stage right now, as we record this at least, where there hasn't been documented community-wide spread of the infection. Most places who are seeing um, this infection in the U.S. and internationally, it begins with imported cases and, and, and then gradually moves to community-based spread. Um, a lot of us in the field feel that there probably is already community-based spread in Hawaii, but our testing hasn't really caught up to, to, to document that, although we'll see. I think as our tests come online in the coming weeks, we're going to have a much better sense of what we're really dealing with out here. Um, so currently, it's felt that a lot of the risks um, for folks who, uh, who may be exposed to coronavirus are coming in from folks who are traveling, but, but I think that in short order, um, if it isn't already the case, actually, um, like any flu, um, or, or um, respiratory virus, <clears throat> the, the risks will really be spread within the community by droplet spread from people who are sick and coughing or, or occasionally from, from surface contacts, from touching something and touching your eyes or face and, um, and spreading it that way. So that's why they've said, don't touch your face. Yes, definitely. Um, it's, uh, it's, very, it's amazing when you do studies of how often people touch their face um, how often it happens, and, and especially, you know, mucous membranes, mouth, or eyes um, are, are ways to transmit infections that, that have been left behind um, some time ago. We're not sure how long this virus persists on surface, it, surfaces. It's not a particularly resilient virus. This is what we would call a, an enveloped viruses, which are, which, which are really, really a class of viruses that aren't particularly um, stubborn in terms of hanging around on surfaces for, um, for a long, long time. But um, there have been several studies on, on this virus, and at least several hours' worth of, of um, lifespan can be, can be had with a virus that's living on a surface, um, and it may be days in some circumstances. So really being meticulous about hand-washing very frequently, and, and hand-washing really is something we should all be getting used to. Um, the use of alcohol-based gels, at least 60% alcohol um, in gels, is, is great, but I think hand-washing is probably even better in lots of studies and, and can't be overemphasized because it's very hard not to touch your face and, and, and uh, surfaces may be contaminated, and that's the best way to, to keep yourself safe, really. And I would, I would challenge anybody because I did this the other day, and I, I, I thought I was really good at this, but apparently I am not. So I thought, okay, for the next one hour, I am going to count going to really pay close attention, had my staff in the office tell me, how many times did you see me touch my face? Because I thought, oh, I can totally do this. I can go an hour and this isn't going to happen. It was amazing. 
I really didn't think I did it that much. But like every few minutes, you know, your nose itches or there's something in your eye or, oh, just this little twitch on your face. And it reminded me back to, you know, medical school when you first start doing your surgical rotation and you scrub up in the operating room and you're told you're not allowed to touch anything. And you're like, what am I going to do? And of course, your nose itches like there's no tomorrow. And so you want to touch it so bad, but you know you can't. It was amazing the number of times. I think within a 10 minute span, I'm like, oh, I didn't touch my face at all. And they were like, like 15 times you did. I'm like, no way. But it really was true. So even if you don't think you're touching your face, you are. And if your uh, hands aren't clean, it's really not. That's that's how you get disease. Yeah, it's part of the human condition. It's amazing. I think, um, you know, for those folks who are wearing masks around, um, one of the main benefits of masks for those who wear it, it's unclear how much it helps if you're feeling well yourself to wear a mask. But. But one thing that's probably true is it does keep you from touching your mouth um, or your nose much. And, and, that depends and it, on how you wear it. So <laughs> let's true. talk about how to not wear masks. Because sure. I've seen a couple of people, and they'll wear them, and their nose will be out of the mask. Yes. And I'll be like, well, that's, that's not working out for you. <laughs> so put your nose in the mask. And also, if you're coughing and you're wearing a mask, it needs to cover your mouth. Yes. You can't, like, wear it somewhere up on your forehead and be like, this is protecting someone. No, it's not. So now what about eyes? For people who don't wear glasses, who don't have any other eye protection, is that if you're wearing a mask but you keep rubbing your eyes, you're really, you're not necessarily protecting anything. Yep. It's, uh, I do think it's just something you need to train yourself over time. It's hard. um, And phone use complicates things too. Um, One often is cleaning surfaces but forgetting how often one touches one's phone and then touches your face. So um, I do think people should start trying to be as conscious about that as possible, not paranoid and not, you know, obsessive about it, but really do do start to practice that. It, it is a learned skill. Do not whip out your phone in the bathroom because even though that's not where you're going to find coronavirus, that's just gross. <laughs> they have done studies and the amount of E. coli, yes, poop bacteria on our cell phones is absolutely outstanding. Don't do it. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. I'm here in the studio with Dr. Tarquin Collis. He is the chief of infectious disease at Kaiser Permanente. When we come back, we're going to talk about what is it like as a provider to take care of patients who may have been diagnosed with coronavirus? And what if you're home and you're taking care of someone and they're really ill, whether it be influenza or coronavirus or any illness, what are some of the things that you may need at your disposal to help them and also protect yourself? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Tarquin Collis. He's the chief of infectious disease at Kaiser Kaiser Permanente. And you were taking care of some of the first coronavirus patients in the state of Hawaii when they were diagnosed. And there's different scenarios for both of those individuals. So what is it like for being a provider? I think we all go to medical school. We want to take care of people when they're sick. And then there's something like this. And there's a lot of folks who might, even as physicians or nurses or staff, get really uncomfortable and nervous and worried. 
What was it like diagnosing those individuals and being the one to take care of them? Yeah, um, it's been an adventure, certainly. I mean, I, you know, I, I would say um, it's in the context of the stuff that infectious disease docs do for a living, so it's less foreign to me to deal with stuff that's a little spooky-seeming, whether that's tuberculosis or meningitis or flesh-eating bacteria or what have you. So it's not the first um, infection, and it won't be the last that, that I deal with in which you're at some risk as a provider, but that's you know, that's what we're here to do, right? <laughs> we're here to take care of the sick. Um, no one chooses to be ill. Um, it's important to provide thoughtful care and to protect yourself, sure, but but it's, um, you know, it's part of the mission, um, frankly. And so these were the, the first two cases. I obviously can't um, provide any details in terms of um, personal health information, but but in broad strokes, one is one is an outpatient who's um, who's doing well, and we stay in contact mostly by phone. The other um, is hospitalized, as as people know, um, at Kaiser, and and uh, and that patient's quite ill, and and really at the other extreme of, of of the severity of this disease, and so it's a striking contrast between the two. Um, what's it like? Um, it's intense. We're learning a lot from these infections, and um, and there's there's a lot of um, reassuring of teams around me. Um, I'm also very blessed to work with a lot of brave folks, uh, nurses and ER docs and primary care docs and urgent care docs on the front line were all involved in the care of these folks and performed absolutely uh, admirably, um, really impressive, actually, um, especially at a time when we as a medical community are just learning how to do this well and do this safely. And the focus was squarely on the patients, and that's, um, that's as it should be. So actually, you know, frankly, um, it made me really proud, proud to be uh, part of, of, of a medical community that's, that's really doing the right thing by patients. That's a wild adventure, and I'm really glad that you've come out of it being appreciative and proud of the folks that you work with. Now, the person who's at home, mm-hmm. when we think about someone who's sick at home, there might be some things that they may want to have. So for anybody, you know, I find it always, and there's various reasons for it, but the toilet paper crisis in this state is amazing that you can't find toilet paper anywhere. And yet there are some other things that might be worth purchasing if you were to go out and look for supplies of something that might be helpful if you're sick. And I'm always amazed when I talk with folks, and I will own this because I could not find my own in the house, so I'm with you right there, that people often don't have a thermometer. Now, I as a physician actually went out and bought a thermometer, and then also as a wish-I-was-more-organized person, couldn't find it. And so my husband was like, where's our thermometer? I'm like, that's a really good question, and I'm embarrassed I don't know. So when we think about things that people may want to have at home, thermometer would be helpful so they can measure, if they have a temperature, exactly how high it might go. You know, I always advocate if someone's really concerned if they have any lung disease or lung problem, There's oxygen sensors. You know, people have Fitbits, and they can tell me how many steps I've taken or not taken today. But, you know, these little $20 oxygen sensors might really make the difference between someone who's okay at home because their oxygen levels are okay or someone who's not okay. And a lot of folks who have emphysema or COPD may have some of these devices already, but they're actually available to anyone. So you could get those at your local pharmacy. You could order them online. But another useful piece of medical equipment blood pressure machines, if you have high blood pressure, or if you're sick and you need to know, is your pressure 
stable, are you okay, another device. So I certainly don't want to send everybody out there to go get medical equipment that they may not know how to use. Luckily, these are real simple and the instructions are easy. But I think it would be more helpful than toilet paper. I mean, I'm just throwing out there that this this could be something to purchase. If the TP aisle is empty, go to the pharmacy aisle. There's good stuff there. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. And I think, you know, what what you're reflecting indirectly is is a, is a, a truth that I think a lot of folks with this disease one are going to be safe at home, and two, you know what we're what we're gearing up for and what we're trying to anticipate and watching other countries and and other states deal with this is that there is a chance that the healthcare system is going to be at at the very least really strained and at the very worst quite overwhelmed, and those that are able to um, be safely cared for at home. Um, you know, there's probably going to be a lot more telephone, video-based visits um, for those that are able to stay out of the hospital. Um, and, uh, and that also protects folks who are in the hospital for other reasons who are actually the most susceptible to this infection in many respects. The hospital is obviously full of people who are in fragile medical states and are elderly often. Those are the people who are going to do you know, most poorly with this disease. So I do think that most of the countries that have um, really done this well so far have focused a lot on on quickly triaging folks to groups of patients who are well enough to be home and take their temperature and and um, and recover slowly from a viral illness that is often a week or two long and and generally does very well unless you're quite um, frail um, and that's you know having the supplies for that is is important having enough food if you're on chronic medications making sure that you have a decent supply of those at home having just Tylenol and Motrin most of the folks who have this disease you know well over ninety percent are going to have intermittent fevers, and and um, it's nice to be able to treat those. Fevers aren't dangerous per se. Um, there is some evidence that, that fevers are actually helpful in, in your immune response to infections, but certainly when they get too high, they're dangerous, and they can make it hard to sleep and rest. So having you know some degree of, of acetaminophen and ibuprofen products at home to help with these, that's been very helpful for, for the, the patient I'm taking care of at home to rest up. Um, those are important things to have. And, of course, a decent supply of food that's, that's non-perishable, um, important. Again, we say these things not because I expect the world to shut down and stores to be shuttered and the rest of it, and, and this isn't you know the apocalypse. It's just that as part of your obligation to society, I think it's important if you're not feeling well to be able to care for yourself at home and to not infect others and, and um, to not, you know, in, in really help the society get over this thing, too, because it, it does kind of come in a rush um, for many of the countries who've dealt with this. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Tarquin Collis. He is the chief of infectious disease at Kaiser Permanente. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what are some of the other things that we could all do to keep one another healthy and community ways that we can incorporate social distancing. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with Dr. Tarquin Collis. He's the chief of infectious disease at Kaiser Permanente, and he's taking care of some of the folks, the initial ones diagnosed here in our state with coronavirus. And we just talked about some things people might need at home. So that would be supplies that they may want to consider if they were to be sick and home. These would be things that they may appreciate having available without having to go to a store to get those. So we've talked about that particular aspect of it. If someone is in the hospital and they're diagnosed with coronavirus and there's a team of people that are taking care of them, should family, friends, and loved ones go visit them? Should they not see them? Should they think about alternative methods of communication if that person is well enough to be able to talk on the phone? And and with anybody in the hospital, who should visit and who should stay home? Well, certainly if you're not feeling well yourself, it should go without saying that coming to the hospital is a bad idea because there's a lot of susceptible people, and that's the case whether it's coronavirus that you have or the flu or the cold or or really anything else. Um, So those who aren't feeling well, um, certainly we're doing a lot at our hospital to try to ask visitors. um, We're actually asking them for for symptoms of infection of any kind. Uh, We really started during the flu season to try to keep our our hospitalized folks safe from visitors who might inadvertently um, introduce an infection. Um, we're still working out, I think, as a medical community, how best to handle visitors to the hospital for folks um, who are actually um, infected with the coronavirus and what's safe for them and what's appropriate for the hospital. Um, taking care of these folks, especially if they're very ill, is um, is challenging. There's lots of equipment involved. It's quite intensive. Um, the recommendations for how we are handling um, isolation of those patients and um, the recommendations for what healthcare professionals are wearing into and out of the rooms of those patients are actually shifting um, as we speak, and that's uh, that's appropriate. Um, most countries have have um, used a lot of uh, intense isolation procedures when you're in containment mode. Um, that's epidemiologic speak for when you only have a few cases. Those measures can become actually dangerous and and deplete supplies of hospital. Um, and, and, and entire states and countries if you continue to use those same practices when you have widespread, um, widespread uh, infection in the community. So those recommendations from the CDC are, are changing as we speak, as we see more um, cases in this country, and as we try to preserve hospital supplies um, for, for the very ill and for the caregivers that are taking care of them. Um, and I think really each hospital is going to have its own guidelines for what's an appropriate approach to having folks visiting um, family members who are infected with COVID if, if, in fact, we do have a lot of those. I know it's always hard to sort of predict into the future, and certainly I've nobody can really predict that far out. But when we think about this episode, you know, we saw SARS in 2003, MERS in 2012. Now we're dealing with, with COVID, and here we are in 2020. Is it likely that we're going to potentially see more of these animal-based viruses that tend to cross over. I know avian flu was something that we were handling that was more in the influenza aspect. Is this going to become more common, or is this just such a unique out-of-the-blue circumstance that you never know? Yeah, there's a lot of interest in this in the infectious disease community, and um, infections that spread, as, as you mentioned, from animals to human are called zoonoses. And as, um, as the human population grows as, and as we encroach further and further into a lot of animal habitats, um, we will see more things like Ebola and coronavirus in all likelihood. 
um, the mechanics of of this virus. I think at, a, at you know as sort of a virologist, a very interesting um, one of the things about about the beta coronaviruses as a group is that the the molecular receptors that they bind to at the level of the lung are the same in bats as they are in camels, as they are in humans. Um, lungs are, are, are highly preserved, as we say in, in the medical community. At the molecular level, our lungs look very much like that of bats. And so it's actually not that hard for this, um, this group of viruses to hop from one species to another. And um, in China, where, um, where the human um, uh, density is, is, is quite extreme in cases, humans are getting closer and closer to the large caves where these bats live. And um, actually, there have been serologic studies done of farmers around large bat caves in China, and many of them show evidence of, of coronavirus infection of other kinds um, just from exposures um, um, to those bats by living close to them. So it's hard to predict the future, certainly. Um, um, and of course, virus um, uh, mechanics are difficult to predict, and vaccine development is difficult to predict. But, um, but I think the chances of different zoonoses spreading um, as climate change itself um, has some impact on these as well, uh, does does suggest to me that we will be seeing more of these in the future. So we just have a few more minutes. Social distancing, that's something that's been mentioned in a variety of different venues. And there's a thought that potentially, particularly for the elderly, if they need to go out, that they try not to go to events with large numbers of people, that if you are sick, you also avoid said events. There have been a lot of cancellations of things that have gone on that are going to be postponed, Coachella and South by Southwest and a variety of different types of big venue events. What exactly does social distancing do? If we wind up having this this situation get much worse, can I still go for a walk on the beach? <laughs> do I need to be careful if there's a lot of people around me? If I'm not sick, do I stay home just to avoid it? If I'm young, what if I'm older? What are some of the common sense things we can all do? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, it's such an interesting time, Kathleen, when we look at at how this is going to play out, it's a little bit hard to know. If you look at at what happened in China and what's happening in Korea, both of those epidemics have already peaked by the looks of it. China is very much on the wane. They had about two to three months of intense activity, and then things things um, slowly declined over the next month or two. Um, Korea looks like they're just um, having peaked on the downhill slope, and and they show similar timetables. Whether those things hold true in the United States and how intense things get in the next weeks to months is hard to predict, but every indication to me suggests that we're going to be for the next couple of months in a period where we do see more and more people getting ill. And during that time, I mean, please have faith that we'll get through this, right? China got through this. Um, we will get through it too. Uh, it may look very different here and much less intense than in Italy and China and other countries that, that, that really struggled with this. It just remains to be seen. But during that time, certainly not going into crowds um, unnecessarily if you are old and frail um, and perhaps if you have underlying medical conditions that are significant, I think that is important. This is a respiratory infection. Six to ten feet is about how far respiratory droplets spread from someone who is coughing. Um, that's an appropriate distance to think about, distancing yourself from someone who's not feeling well. Um, We'll just have to see. The CDC does have some pretty explicit recommendations that are worth reviewing for folks um, about social distancing, especially if you're physically frail. 
um, or elderly. And I do think this is going to be a period for the next month or two, perhaps, when we do see community transmission in Hawaii, in which the elderly probably would do well to stay at home, by and large, to the extent they can. Mind you, we all have to live life, right? We have to take care of ourselves. Social relationships matter. Um, relationships with families matter. But protecting the elderly from those who are ill becomes really important, either within, their, within your own family or within large communities. And if you are sick, don't visit grandma in the nursing home. Definitely. Stay home yourself. Take care of yourself. Try and make sure that you're not exposing yourself to the public. You know, a lot of times, well, I'm, I'm a guilty queen. I've gone to work when I wasn't 100%, and that's not the best of all plans. So if you are sick, take sick days, stay home, take care of yourself, protect the community at large. Very much so, and, and we will get through this. Please don't forget, this isn't the end of the world. We'll see the other side of this just as China has, and we'll be okay, but let's take good care of ourselves in the meantime. Excellent advice. I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us. That's Dr. Tarquin Collis, Chief of Infectious Disease at Kaiser Permanente, and really helping us to understand a little more about the logistics and how we as a community are going to handle coronavirus. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. Woo!